you everyone for joining us for another episode of the Pre-Raphaelite podcast of the Pre-Raphaelite Society. Today, I am joined by Eleonora Sasso, and my name is Sherry. So Eleonora is the Associate Professor of English at the University of Chiete in Pescara, Italy, and her major research fields include Victorian literature and culture, the Pre-Raphaelites, cognitive linguistics, audiovisual translation, and Canadian studies. And I know her from her work on the book, The Pre-Raphaelites and Orientalism, Language and Cognition and Remediation of the East from 2018. Her recent book is Late Victorian Orientalism, Representations of the East in 19th Century from 2020. Thank you so much for joining me today for this episode. Oh, thank you very much for inviting me. It's a real pleasure to be part, you know, of this podcast project. Thank you very much. Yes, definitely. So just to get started, how did you get interested in the Pre-Raphaelite? Well, um, I wrote my PhD dissertation on William Morris uh, 20 years ago. It was in Italian and it was entitled uh, William Morris Between Utopia and Medievalism. So I investigating uh, news from Norway, uh, which is, as you know, a socialist ecological utopia set in the 21st century, but strangely looking, you know, as a 14th century garden city. And it's, it was very similar to Florence in a way, because William Morris compared, for example, the Hammersmith Bridge to the Ponte Vecchio, Uh, in Florence and also there are references to the baptistry because you know Maurice um, envisioned the baptistry as a very powerful symbol of the history of the of the city and for its narrative effect Um, so you know this this utopia was particularly appealing to me also because there are references to gardens Um, Noah is a garden city and according to William Morris there were positive necessities you know in order to live uh, a healthy life in body and mind so William Morris struggled against um, slavery you know luxury class distinction was enacted through this rhetoric of simplicity of life. All the characters in nowhere uh, spend time devoting themselves to the lesser arts because mm-hmm. to Morris there was no distinction between works of art and the lesser arts. And for example, there is this peculiar character, Ellen, uh, who is a Beatrice-like figure uh, not only because she's a travel guide in nowhere, but also because she appears in the same way as uh, Ellen appears in the same way as Beatrice does in Dante's Divine Comedy. Uh, they appeared, you know, Ellen appears in a, gay, if I remember well, in a gay little craft um, painted over with flowers. Right, right. And Beatrice. Uh, appears in a chariot amid a rain of flowers near the river Lethe. So as you can see, there are many comparisons and connections uh, between them. 
So, as you probably know, I fell in love with William Morris and all the Raphaelite artists, with Dante Gabriel Rossetti's, you know, gorgeous double works of art. Definitely. Uh, with, with Elizabeth Sintels, because uh, she was not only a silent muse, she was a poet, you know, poetess, a painter. And also with William Michael Rossetti's democratic sonnets, because they were, you know, poems against tyranny and oppression. So I fell in love with all of them because the Paraphalites are the most innovative artists, revolutionary artists of that period. Uh, they had such an attention to details, the so-called truth to nature, and um, they use color with such vibrant, you know, use and colors, and also their attention to literary subjects of the past, because, you know, there is a nice description of the Paraphalites by Charles Dickens, who criticized them, <laughs> we have to say <laughs> that, but he compared them to an old lamp market selling old lamps for new ones. So it's a reference to their retrogressive techniques, the way they that they made something old into something new. Mm -hmm. So that's why I fell in love with the Paraphalites. I mean, uh, I cannot fell in love with them. <laughs> I, I, and I love um, you've mentioning like the character from News from Nowhere being like Beatrice. And then you think of, you know, Rossetti and his connections to Dante and and Mora and his relationship with Morris and there's just so much intertwined between the art and the literature between That's all true. of them it, it's just expansive it, it's amazing to me it um so in your book the Pre-Raphaelites and Orientalism, you discussed The Beloved by Dante Gabriel Rossetti. One question that always comes up when people talk to me about Rossetti and Orientalism is they they question, do you think he was doing stuff actually as an Orientalist with the normal tropes, or is it just him trying to be aesthetic? Yes. Thank you for asking that. I think we should reevaluate Dante Gabriel a bit. I mean, he's not only the decadent, aesthetic author, founder of the fleshly school of poetry, because he was really interested in this, was deeply fascinated with this, as, for example, exemplified by his many illustrations, you know, of the Arabian Nights or his double works of art remediating some kind of yeast. Mm -hmm. uh, he compares himself to a Latin, uh, for example, in the early Italian uh, poets, the preface to the early Italian poets, uh, he compares himself to a Latin. <laughs> uh, he says that, um, you know, the translator's path is, is like that of a Latin in the enchanted board because he has to choose among a variety of treasure options in the same way as the translator has to choose the best word, you know, to translate a sentence or any lexical item. Um, so this um, recurring, you know, metaphor, uh, this identification with the Latin dates back to his early age. He was only mm -hmm. seven 
if you think about that, only seven when he started drawing illustrations of the Arabian Nights. And to him, the East was a blended space, you know, combining East and West, poetry and painting, the sacred and the profane. So it's a combination of culture, a mixture of references to other cultures. As a matter of fact, you see there is such a double work of art as The Bride, mm -hmm. you know? Um, well, The Bride is a celebration of cultural pluralism, a celebration of Orientalism, because if you look at the painting, there are many beautiful girls from different parts of the East. You know, there is at the very center of the painting, the typical European beauty with pale uh, skin, red hair, you know, green, blue eyes, mm -hmm. uh, but she's wearing, you know, robes and ornaments from the East. So she's wearing right. the Peruvian headdress, um, Chinese hair ornaments, the kimono robe, the green kimono robe. And she's surrounded by these beautiful bridesmaids um, that stands from different parts of the East. For example, you have on the very right, if I remember well, um, a model from Jamaica, mm -hmm. another another gypsy model. Um, I think Kiomi Gray was the name of the model. And uh, we have also a close-up of uh, an African girl, an attendant. Um, scholars say that Rossetti was inspired by L'Olympia uh, of Manet because he went to Paris and visited Manet's studio. Um, we have to say that this black figure is highly interesting. I do really think he's making a political statement in the sense that there is the Irish girl with red hair. Mm -hmm. So it may, it may be a reference to the Irish immigrants to the UK. So she stands for the exotic other, not only because she's wearing, you know, oriental robes and ornaments, but also because she recalls an Irish girl. As a matter of fact, William Michael Rossetti calls her a Mrs. Mackenzie. So we have you know, proof that she could be an Irish girl. Interesting. And, yeah. And the, the black figure, um, Rossetti started to paint both male and female, you know, models. Um, originally, there was a mulatto girl with long hair. Then he decided to move to a male child whose name was Gabriel, you know that? Oh, so wow. <laughs> the scholars make, you know, hypotheses that maybe the mulatto girl in the painting is a version of Gabriel attending this, um, this event. But the painting itself, it's also a contradiction because there are, mm, you know, references to the Bible in the frame of the picture. Yes. And they are taken from the Song of Solomon and the Psalm of David, but they envision two different kinds of love, erotic love and pure love in the Psalm of David. 
So when we watch, you know, any of Dante Gabriel's paintings, we experience something like a dynamic experience in the sense that the viewer is attracted by different, you know, details, spotlights, and at the same time is trying to find the meaning of the painting by reading these lines, watching the painting, because, you know, Rossetti sometimes wrote first the poem, the ecrastic poem, sometimes he painted the picture before. In this case, uh, there is no ecrastic poem, but references to the Bible. And we could say that this is a triple work of art, not a double work of art. Because if you remember the double work of art by the definition by Jerome McGann uh, promotes the conceptual aspects of the image and the iconographical powers of the text. Mm -hmm. But here we have two text, one painting, interconnected so we could talk about triple works of art Rossetti even experimented with other media in the sense that he created quadruple works of art when right right translates himself so it's really you know fascinating and I do really think this painting um is really modern in a way because it represents the variety of cultures across the globe. And even if you look at it, it looks like a selfie. Don't you think that? Oh, yeah. I mean, because it's like everyone gathered and you've yeah. got the central yeah. figure. Her place. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you just need the eye. arm extended. <laughs> yes, yeah. I hadn't so, thought of that. That That is a great, you know look at it because you have all these people and the way they're clustered yeah um, but yeah Ro Rossetti always seems to be like a contradiction to me yeah. because like you said there's just so many different aspects and you've got the poem or references to other works and then you've got the painting and as you start to pick it apart it's like, wait, was he going this direction or did he mean for you to see it this way? And for my thesis work, I did a Starte Syriaca oh, um, interesting. Uh, for my uh, works of Orientalism to represent Rossetti. And every time I look at it, I see different details or I pick out a different detail from the poem. And right. I'm like, but I didn't notice that before. I should, you know, like, oh, that changes that whole part of my explanation of it's yeah true. and you see it's a dynamic experience you're always discovering something mm -hmm. we're like Sherlock Holmes you know <laughs> he he was a tough one because like you said just on the central figure in the beloved you've got Peruvian you've got Asian you've got all like four different cultures represented on one figure and it's like, is he just trying to look, you know, go for the look of it, you know, and make it pretty? Or was there a deeper meaning behind it? And and so he fascinates me because I think a lot of people look at him and go, oh, he just did it for, you know, it's just meant to be pretty. And I'm like, but if you read what he wrote to go with things, you know, for his double works, there's a lot of meaning behind every item. It's and true, so. definitely true. You're right. <laughs>
It's an experience. That's why it's still talking to us nowadays. Exactly. You know? And it's still very topical. I I, I think <laughs> everyone gets, oh, yeah, why are you studying 19th century British art? And and it, there's so many, you know, like you mentioned, William Morris was a socialist and he believed in equality and and everyone could work together and have this, you know, utopia. You look at, you know, all of them with their politics and everything. They were so forward thinking, even in today's standards in a lot of ways. <laughs> yes. I mean, Rossetti was a cultural mediator. Let's say that. That's a, a great agent for cultural change because he was an Anglo-Italian artist. We have to remember that. Oh, look at the East for inspiration. Mm -hmm. So his approach to literary subjects, to translation, because he was also a translator, let's say, let's say that it takes place in a continuum, you know, of different cultures. That's why it's so updated. I mean, it's so fascinating. We can talk right. about him for <laughs> how there is so much to say. Yeah. Oh, definitely, definitely. Um, now, I know you're not an art historian, but do you, as far as what you know about like how the French and the British entered the themes of Orientalism, do you think the British artists came at it the same way as the French? Or do you think there was like a different meaning behind how they approached Orientalism? That's a very interesting question. Well, I think that in order to answer that, uh, we could go back to Said's Orientalism because he offers us, you know, definitions, classifications, categorization of producers of Orientalist discourse. That's what he calls them. Mm -hmm. According to him, to him, just very, you know, very quick uh, summary, uh, there were Orientalists who had a very impersonal approach to the East in the sense that they represented the East something like a scientific observation of the East. So very faithful, you know, scientifically um, authentic. Uh, then according to Said, there are semi-impersonal Orientalist artists uh, so those scholars or artists who were less willing to sacrifice their eccentricity, you know, mm -hmm. mm, it could be, for example, Sir Richard Burton, if you think about that. And last but not least, there were the personal Orientalists, that is to say those artists or scholars who envisioned these in their own personal way, and sometimes they even went to the East or to the Egypt, Turkey and the Balkans and so forth. So I think that um, Dante Gabrielzetti is a unique case in the sense that he envisioned this in his own personal way. Mm -hmm. uh, so he combined different cultures together, different references, sources. Uh, so we cannot say that when we watch his Orientalist works of art, we cannot say which part you know, <laughs> of the East is really represented. On the other hand, the French artists were really faithful and authentic in their representation. If I think about Jérôme or Delacroix, 
Yes, they have their own personal style, but their representation were, were very faithful. So we mm -hmm. could tell about the setting, the architecture, the detail, the arabesque, that, that, that was the East. So I think that um, Rossetti is totally different from the French artist. Maybe Holman Hunt is more similar to Jerome and Delacroix in his faithfulness to the East. But Rossetti is <laughs> I mean, is quite unique. You cannot yeah. compare him to them, really. And he never went to the East. No, person. no. Um, so, it, it shocks me because, you know, like Holman Hunt went to the East. And I think that's where he has that that scientific method it. to it, almost like the, the French artists. That's um, it. But as much as Rossetti was interested in all the cultures, you would have thought he was, you know, traveling a lot more than he was. And so it's sort of interesting to see, you know, he picked up all this stuff and had it commissioned, you know, different things, but he wasn't traveling to those Eastern countries. I agree, I agree. That's, so we have to distinguish between those artists who visited the East and those who never went there. So that's and I a huge I think difference. that leads to, um, I know you mentioned um, like how some of the artists saw the East as magic or magical. And it goes back to Rossetti's fascination with Arabian Nights at such a young age, at, you know, seven years old. And and his siblings always talking me, about you that, you know, like this wasn't like a newfound interest. This was an ongoing interest his entire life. I think yes. In the sense that we found these, we find these double works of art um, telling a story from the East. Uh, Helen of Troy, mm -hmm. Astarte Syriaca, and The Bride. And then we have the illustrations. And also, um, I was thinking before about the bride. There is one model on the left of the painting. She's Ellen Smith. Mm -hmm. And she's also depicted in a Christmas carol the year after the bride. And she's wearing the same robe, the same Japanese golden robe. So he's insisting, you know, on this topic. And also in the Christmas carol, she's playing uh, an oriental instrument. Right, right. So that's really, I mean, that's a pervasive influence across all his life. Mm-hmm. Well, and you think of, I mean, there's so many pieces that he has, and it might not be the model, might not have anything Orientalist represented. It could be like the Blue Bower where it's the chinoiserie yeah. or, you know, you've got these different pieces throughout or an instrument or, yes. you know, it. um, it, it's right. an ongoing series for him. It's not just a one-off, oh, here's yeah. my interest and... <laughs> Yes, it is. I mean, the model was still a European, beautiful, right. beautiful European model, but um, decorations, you know, uh, robes, ornaments were typically from the East. So talking about uh, William Morris, when you look at William Morris's works, especially the pieces that were more Orientalist inspired, do you think he came from... Um, a place of admiration um, or appreciation or was it more of a political statement for him with his socialist views 
versus just him creating like new design work? Yes, that's a big question. <laughs> Loaded <laughs> <Anyway>, there. <laughs> I will try to answer it. You know, the works of William Morris grew out of an extraordinary blend of genius. He was craftsman, designer, um, typographer, socialist. He was founder of the Society for the Protection of Ancient Buildings, founder of the Kamsko Press, socialist league. I mean, uh, yeah, he, he did everything. <laughs> he did, I mean, he excelled in everything. That's the, the point. So he wrote 90 books and all these activities uh, were aimed at fighting ugliness, you know, against the industrial revolution. He was also a dreamer of dreams. He, he defined himself as a dreamer of dreams born out of his due time. So to him, for example, the Arabian Nights were a source of inspiration. He, he said that the Arabian Nights were something like a Bible to him. So we have to think about that and look at his works of art. Mm -hmm. Needless to say, he was a craftsman. So uh, to him, the East was a source of inspiration for the art of carpet making. Uh, in particular, the Persian rug weaving. Mm -hmm. um, Byzantium was the most intriguing place in the world because it was a combination of aestheticism, centralism, and also it was uh, advisor on carpets for the South Kensington Museum. Now it's the Halbert and Victoria Museum, mm -hmm. but once it was named the South Kensington Museum. So he supported the acquisition of the Ardabil carpet, hmm? the right. one which was defined as a remarkable work of art, uh, whose design uh, was characterized by a singular perfection, and it standed for Byzantine decorative arts in a way. Uh, so um, the point is that he was also the founder of the Society for the Protection of Ancient Buildings, and he started a campaign against the restoration of St. Mark Basilica in Venice. You know that um, this, this architecture mm -hmm. stands for influences from the Arab world. So um, he started a, then again another crusade, against restoration because to him you know the past history teaches us uh, very important values and issues so he couldn't bear to see uh, St. Mark Basilica restored and also in the earthly paradise there are many narrative poems inspired by the Arabian Nights and in particular from the forbidden chamber cycle. So the paramount example is Aladdin or the Wonderful Lamb, which is uh, a source of inspiration for um, the poem, The Writing on the Image, mm -hmm. in which there is an African magician uh, who is not looking for the lamp, but for a green gem, a, a jewel. And so it's not Aladdin who descends into the vault to find the lamp, but the magician itself. So there are differences because, you know, 
the Paraphyte applied this approach to the Arabian knife. Mm -hmm. They lifted character settings, ideas from the Arabian knives, and you know they they use them in their own writings, in their own poems. So you will find sometimes a reference to a plot of an Arabian tale, or you will find sometimes the title from an Arabian tale. So you have to, to look for them. Like I said before, a detective mm -hmm. in order to find these references in William Morris, for example, Oriental uh, works. But he was also a designer. <laughs> you know that very well. And I mean, the first wallpapers by William Morris were inspired by mm, the British countryside, especially from the Red House, you mm -hmm. know? Uh, so we have trellis, fruit, daisy, they are typically from the British countryside. Right. But the later, the later um, wallpapers, patterns, designs um, are characterized by some Oriental influences. Uh, I was thinking about Pimpernel, for example, um, whose, you know, vegetation is typically from the East. Right, and, right. Yes, from Japan. So there are references not only to the Middle East, but also to the Far East. And also there are other, other Oriental patterns. Um, I don't know, Peacock and the Dragon or... Uh, many, many others that represent also Indian. Yes, India. I was thinking about the Indian pattern. Uh, yeah, right. I saw vegetation I... is serpentine-like, if yes. you remember that. <laughs> yeah, and there are different versions, you know, monochromes in red, in yellows. So, I mean, he had so many uh, influences and sources from the East, and he applied them in his many talents. So poems, you know, uh, wallpapers, patterns, architecture. Uh, yes, he was really fascinated by the East in this sense. Yeah, I always think of his wallpaper designs or fabric designs, and as you mentioned, a lot of times he'd have the same design but it'd be different color versions and it's interesting because certain color versions lend themselves to you can see like an more of an eastern influence or oh that one's definitely more british foliage or yeah like that's coming from this region um and it's interesting because it's the same pattern but depending on what color he was using it changes yeah. it you see the different influences that he was you know meshing all into one piece You're right. um and I didn't notice that at first with his work and then it's like as I keep looking through the different works and I'm like oh wow that one's definitely more eastern influence <laughs> because of the color choices or you know you really see the pattern work really yeah, stands out details or, make the difference yeah, yeah. It, it's really fascinating with his work so tell us what what are you currently working on or what would you like to be working on well, <laughs> um, I would like to investigate the legacy of the Paraphyites, you know, in the sense that from the literary point of view, there are many postmodern authors who have been, um, you know, influenced by the Paraphyites. 
just to mention Antonia Bayard and Possession, and there is its novel and movie at the same time. So it's interesting to see the differences, mm -hmm. how they remediated the stories and personalities from the Farafolite brotherhood also there is angela carter with her novels and margaret atwood as well uh, with lady oracle cat's eye and so many others so they were deeply fascinated by the masks of the paraphrase so uh, the painter the muse the craftsman the socialist we can find all these roles uh, in figures in their novels and also by their works of art. If we think about possession, for example, there is a reference to Monavanna mm -hmm. uh, in the movie in particular, that, that, that is particular evident. Monavanna is depicted by Blanche Glover, who is, uh, you know, um, a homosexual paraphernalia artist. And she's painting Monavanna, and that painting also is depicted as a photographic reproduction in Maud Bailey's studio. So when you watch the movie, you see all these references to paintings, wallpapers. For example, two days ago, I was watching Netflix, and there was this fantasy movie whose name is Night Books. Mm -hmm. It's for children, needless to say. But um, it's a story inspired by Hansel and Gretel. And uh, the witch's apartment, the walls of the witch's apartment were covered with William Morris wallpapers. So you <laughs> see, uh, but there are many other movies with William Morris wallpapers, Neverland, yeah. or The Notebook, or many of the, the Woman in White. I mean, William Moore's wallpaper are haunting our imagination still today. Right. I'm sure that they are a symbol of, you know, elegance, you know, in Victorian London, because they were also very expensive, but they create something magical in a way. Because, you know, in that movie that I mentioned before, Nightbooks, there is Blackthorn, the wallpaper Blackthorn. Mm -hmm which is the most magical of trees. Uh, it is defined as the mother of the woods and so forth. And is the, the tree which is surrounding the Sleeping Beauty's castle. So I think there is something magical about William Morris wallpapers in the sense that we create an indoor garden or an indoor forest. Mm -hmm. You feel immersed, you know, in a medieval wood with witches, you know, searching for you. And so I, I would be interested in looking at the legacy of the Paraphales, both from a literary viewpoint and a visual or audiovisual perspective. That, that could be interesting, I think. I think that could be really interesting because like you mentioned, you're just watching Netflix and you're like, wait, that's all, you know, this wallpaper or all of that fabric, you know, the curtains are made out of that, or there's references to their paintings or their art, you know, their books or anything like that. And I know some of it that I notice is because I work with the pre-Raphaelites, but at the same time, I feel like there's a lot of influence right now in things and seeing it in mass media and stuff and um 
and, and it's amazing because, you know, it's a wonderful legacy. And like you said, you look at like what patterns they picked, why'd they pick that pattern? Yeah. You know, it's lending it, you know, if you knew the meaning of, you know, like you yeah, said, Blackthorn, oh, wait, that's adding another layer to the story and, and, you know, adding that a representation. So that, yeah, that could be a really fascinating project. Yes. We have <laughs> you could be doing it for time, a while. <laughs> so just to finish off, so who would you say is your favorite pre-Raphaelite artist or writer? That's a tough question. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to me, the perfect pre-Raphaelite artist would be a combination between William Morris and Dante Gabriel Rossetti, you know? And that would be a combination. Yes. So between, let's say, the Apollinian artist and the Dionysian, so the dreamer and the intoxicating artist. Uh, so the artist um, whose aim was to create a beautiful place with moral, you know, ideas and stories and the aesthetic, you know, artist. Um, the embodiment of aestheticism. So I think that could be a combination. But <laughs> if I have to pick just one, I'd say William Morris. You know why? Because he had such a variety of interests and mm -hmm. he excelled in any of these interests. So that's amazing. And right. also, I will pick William Morris because he was a fantasy author. I'm in love with all his high romances, the boot beyond the world, the water of the wondrous isles, the well of the world sand, the house of the wolf things, you know, with werewolves around. So right. I, I think it's really interesting from different viewpoints. And I do really believe that Tolkien, for example, was inspired by his high romances and fantasies because Lady Galadriel looks like one of his witches, you know, I'd say Abundia in the Water of the Wondrous Lies, but let's see. And Morris created all these witches interconnected with nature, in particular with water, because they are all replicas of Nimue, no? you know, the Lady of the Lake. Yes. So, I mean... William Morris is the most interesting one because of its variety of interests. That's it. I think that's the answer. Yeah, I I, I agree. Um, he he fascinates me because, like you said, he did so many different things and he was so good at them all. It wasn't like, oh, I'm a jack of all trades, but master of none he was mastering all of them and that just yeah, fascinates me amazing. i mean that is true genius and to be able yeah. to grasp it so well and and you know and the fact like with his writing he's taking from iceland he's taking from you know british culture it's from true. the eastern cultures and he's just taking all of these cultures and making these stories you know that are fascinating yeah i could definitely see where he would have influenced possibly like Tolkien or yeah, um, C.S. Lewis, you know, I, I think of these different authors who came out of the early 20th century and, you know, they probably were familiar because of but him they, being a British artist. Fantasy worlds, you mm -hmm. know, it could be Narnia, the Middle Earth or the Wood Beyond the Worlds in William Morris. 
uh, romances. So they created their own worlds in a very peculiar way. And also Mori was influenced by the Celtic revival. So you have to mm-hmm. think about that, that any of his magic derives from the Celtic revival. He, he had Welsh ancestors. So he was deeply fascinated by that. I mean, he's deeply influ- he deeply influenced all these authors and he's still influencing modern art because right. the papers are still <laughs> in the movies, you know? Every time I watch a movie, I can grasp, you know, and see. Definitely. Papers. <laughs> Definitely. Thank you so much for sitting down with me today. I really appreciate it. And for those who are new to the Pre-Raphaelite podcast, please make sure you like or uh, rate us how you choose to listen to us. We will have more episodes soon. Thank you. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Bye. Bye.